I'm surprised, Simon, that you didn't have my name on this morning. Did you? There's actually about 30 people in the congregation. Anyone with the name Derwin, please put your hand up this morning. Anybody? It's a bunch of Derwins out there. That's awesome since I never, ever run into another Derwin in my life. This is a beautiful experience for me. Um, Simon, uh, let me pray for you. Thank you for, for sharing this morning. Father, we, uh, we bless this dear, dear guy. Think of him as he, he's going back to school this week to seminary. And as you're training him for what you have, have in store for him, God, we bless him. And we're, we've been blessed by him, uh, by his thoughtful reading of the word. And uh, Lord, insights into to what you and how you love speaking to your people through your word. So would you speak through our dear brother today? May we, may we all be blessed as we hear uh, your voice in our hearts and our minds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Um, this uh, this summer's been kind of strange for my family. Uh, my studies paused, and then we were back in England for a month, and then uh, we we're kind of a bit all over the place. I've been preaching at a few different places, so it is good to see you all. It is good to be here this morning, and uh, I'm looking forward to our time together. One more quick announcement before we jump into God's word is um, sometimes it may not seem like it. But uh, myself and other preachers are aware that listening to sermons can be difficult. Um, Derwin's aware of it. I'm aware of it. I find listening to sermons difficult. And so we really want to be able to help you. We try and uh, prepare so that it's as easy to listen to as possible. Um, And yet we can only kind of take that so far. In a sense... Listening to sermons isn't meant to be as easy as, say, for instance, watching TV, where you kind of just sit back down and kind of zone out and lay there and just consume. No, it's actually more active rather than passive. Uh, Attentive listening is an active exercise. And so in light of that, because we want to make it as easy as possible for you, uh, really help you guys in this pursuit, then we've ordered a bunch of these sermon notebooks. How they're structured is they have 52 double-page spreads for one for each week of the year. And it's got some guided questions. It's got space for notes. Um, But it's also organized. And so rather than having kind of notes scribbled around all over the place, you have it all in one place. The highest recommendation I can give for this is that I have one of these myself, uh, and I found it very helpful for kind of focus, for for keeping me uh, attentive in light of distractions, hunger, whatever else that comes up. Um, And so I really believe that this will be helpful for many of you. They're $10 each. You can grab one out in the foyer after the service. If the price is difficult, please speak to me or Derwin afterwards. We would love for you to to try out this resource. I think it will be helpful. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. That's where we're going to be reading from in just a few moments. What practices characterize your life? What practices characterize your life? What are your rhythms, your routines? What are your patterns of life, your habits? 
if someone was to look in on your life from the outside, what would they see you repeatedly doing? And what kind of conclusions would they draw from that? As I try and answer this question myself, I believe that there would be some positives. The importance of family in my life, the importance of scripture, um, genuine care for others. But it also got me thinking about the negatives as well. The place of technology in my life. The way that I present myself in order to be seen and accepted by others. Even the inconsistency of my devotion to God. How it depends on how I'm feeling week to week and month to month. My hope this morning is that we would be stirred up and encouraged to reconsider the habits, the rhythms, the practices, even the attitudes that define our lives, that make up our lives day to day. The question that's answered in this passage this morning is how should Jesus' life, death, and resurrection affect how we live? Uh, What does it mean to be living in light of Jesus? who he is, what he's done, what he is doing, what he will do. What does it mean to live a life characterized by that? Hebrews is an incredibly rich book for the amount of Old Testament imagery that it contains. And so in the first 10 chapters, it lays this foundation for how superior Jesus is to everything that comes before him. And so you have him as the true, the perfect Son of God, the true, the perfect, the once-for-all sacrifice, and you have him as the greatest, the last, and the eternal priest. And when we get to this passage in chapter 10, you see this shift take place. Is the microphone distracting? Slide back. In the passage that we're looking at this morning, you see this shift takes place. You have these 10 chapters of this is who Jesus is, what he's done, and then it gets to this summarizing in the first couple of verses, and it gets to the therefore, it gets to the implications, it gets to the therefore live this way. And specifically, it gives us three practices for the life of someone who follows Jesus. The the so what, the why does it matter, the how does this change how we live day to day. And these practices aren't the only practices of a follower of Jesus, and maybe they're not even particularly profound and new, but they're important ones that we need to be reminded of time to time, and they're very important and central to someone who's living in light of Jesus. So what are these practices, and what does it look like to to live with those as part of our lives? That's what we're exploring this morning. So why don't you go ahead and stand with me if you're able to in recognition of the God who has given us his word. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, That is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, 
let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. We thank you for this word that you've given to us, and we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to be able to understand what you are saying to us through this. And may we have the boldness and the determination to actually put this into practice. We pray this in your name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. The first practice that we come across, that we're urged to devote ourselves to, is really quite simple. Draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. Time and again throughout Scripture, God uses uh, this kind of language to speak to His people. He, He constantly calls them to draw near to Him. And it's a relational language. You think of marriage, you think of friendships, relationships, the characteristic of a healthy relationship is the striving for drawing near to one another, physically and and emotionally. The prophet Isaiah repeatedly turns to this theme. And so in Isaiah 34, verse 1, it says, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. What does it mean to draw near to God? It means to hear and to give attention. Practically, the the greatest expression of this is our continual commitment to read, understand, and put into practice the Scriptures, God's Word. Psalm 119, the longest psalm, mentions a number, of idea, a number of times the idea of meditating, dwelling upon, thinking about the commands, the precepts, the statutes, the promises, the word of God. It uses all these different terms and language to grasp the full breadth of devoting ourselves to considering what God has communicated. Considering what God has communicated not as an end in and of itself, but in order to know him better. Know what he's like. Know what his priorities are. Know how he would have us live. Know what pleases him. Know him like a wife knows her husband. What is in the mind of God? How many people all around the world would give anything to find that out? And yet, in the scriptures, that's what God has given to us. An insight into his mind. If you really want to know how central attentive listening is to the idea of drawing near to one another, then I suggest husbands, next time 
your wife spends five minutes explaining something in detail to you, then, then just turn to her and say, honey, I, I didn't hear a word of that. And just feel how distanced <laughs> you, you feel from each other from that moment onwards. In any relationship, central to the idea of drawing near is listening, attentive listening. Another part of drawing near to God is speaking, or to put it another way, praying. That's what prayer is, speaking with God. Relational communication is two-way. There's a time to listen, and there's a time to speak. There's a time to hear, and there's a time to be heard. And again, Isaiah picks up on this theme. In, ver- in chapter 29, verse 13, and the Lord said, these people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips. Listening only takes us so far. There comes a point where we need to respond to what we've heard. I'm somewhat of a pragmatist, and I generally view things through, what's the benefit of this? What do I get out of it? And I find praying difficult. I always have. It's been something that becomes less naturally to me. It's something I have to work harder at. Uh, Because my mind naturally goes to, well, what am I getting from this? What do I gain? Which entirely misses the point. I don't think that when I'm spending time listening and speaking to my wife, Jenna, my friend, Kevin. So why would I view communication with God the same way? Instead, this is about knowing God and being known by him. The rhythm of continually drawing near and staying close. And it's true that God does answer prayer. But that's one facet to a vision that's much greater than my pragmatism. Life isn't always about efficiency, and certainly the Christian life isn't always about efficiency, or at the very least, God's idea of efficiency is much different from my idea of efficiency. And this leads on to the next point. It's not just the very act of drawing near to God that matters to him. It actually matters how we draw near to him, the attitude with which we draw near to him. Isaiah 29 actually continues. And the Lord said, this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. We're to draw near to God with an attitude of of reverence, respect. The fear of the Lord is an overwhelming theme in scripture. It's called the beginning of wisdom. And the idea of fear is a deep reverence, a respect, a high esteem. God is our father and we can draw near to him as a child draws near to their dad. But also he's the God of the universe, the creator of everything, powerful and holy. Are we cultivating a deep reverence for God? I wonder if in many parts of the Western church, we've really grasped well the idea that we can have intimacy with God. Maybe the area that we've drifted from slightly is the truth of God's holiness 
and the idea of the fear of the Lord. The importance of how we draw near to God is also picked up in this passage in Hebrews. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and let our bodies and our bodies washed with pure water. Because we've been cleansed, because we've been washed by the blood of Jesus, let us approach God in confidence and with a genuine, uh, undivided heart. Are we approaching God with a humble confidence? Confident because our trust is in Jesus and he has made it possible for us to draw near to God. Humble, because we realize this is still the great and majestic God of the universe. Brother Lawrence, French monk, the 17th century, wrote, there is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful than that of a continual conversation with those only can comprehend it who practice and experience it. Let us draw near to God daily, consistently meeting him through his word and through prayer. And James chapter four, verse eight, has a wonderful promise for us. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The second practice we're urged to pursue is to hold fast. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Notice the words that are being used. Confession. Our faith isn't just a personal belief, something that we keep to ourselves. It's a confession. It's a a public allegiance. And then there's the word hope. Not a kind of fingers crossed hope. Well, I hope it works out. No, this is a hope that is based upon the reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Who he is and what he's done. Perseverance or endurance is a recurring theme in the book of Hebrews. And there are different metaphors that are used in scripture for it. One is, is it's like a race, it's like running a race, like a marathon. And you see this runner running along, sweat pouring down his face, cramp in his leg, but with his eyes fixed on that finish line that he is pursuing, that he is heading towards. Or it's like fighting a battle and the perseverance of a warrior. And here the imagery that's used is it's, it's like continue, continually gripping and holding fast without faltering. If you've ever been rock climbing, there's probably been a time where uh, you got a certain of the way up, a certain height up, and you look down and you kind of realized how high up you really were. And at that moment, your, your grip becomes that much tighter, and your knuckles become a bit whiter, and you, you cling on, and your muscles tense. But it's not just about using your muscles to, to grip on as much as you can. One of the things about rock climbing is as you climb, your hands get very sweaty and there's the danger of slipping. That's why you'll see climbers with a bag of chalk 
on their side so they can soak up the moisture, dry out their hands, and have a firmer grip that's less likely to slip. What's the sweat in your life and what's the chalk? What causes your grip to loosen on your faith? What helps you to grip more tightly? There are certain exercises that can act as chalk for all of us. Daily committing ourselves to scripture and prayer, growing a right attitude toward God is something that keeps all of our grips tight. William Wilberforce once said about his fight against the slave trade, I daily become more sensible that my work must be affected by constant and regular exertions rather than by sudden and violent ones. Constant and regular. I think this applies well to the Christian life. It's better to spend 15 minutes a day in God's word than four hours once every two weeks. That's how relationships work as well. Another exercise that helps us continue holding tightly is being encouraged by those who have lived faithfully before us. Seeing the long line of godly men and women throughout the history of Jesus' church. Just a few verses later in Hebrews chapter 11, you have this entire chapter laying out heroes of the faith, examples for us to follow. You see Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, King David, these people who weren't perfect, but they lived faithfully before God. The idea is look back. Look back to see who has walked before you faithfully, who has persevered in the faith, who has endured, run the race and finished. Learn from them and be encouraged by their perseverance in the faith. I've had friends who have walked away from the faith. I have had family members who have walked away from the faith. There have been recently Christian leaders who have walked away from the faith who have ceased to hold fast their confession. And there has been before, and there will be again. And it's immensely discouraging, which I think is the natural response to that. If we truly understand the consequences of that kind of decision, we should be burdened because of where our brothers and sisters are at. Yet one of the great encouragements that has counted this for me, that encourages me to persevere, is reading about, learning about, uh, learning from those who have been faithful in days gone by. Those who lived lives of faithfulness to the end. A long line of godly men and women since the time of Christ seeing the lives of people in scripture, Paul and Barnabas, who remained faithful in the midst of persecution, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her humility, and then those throughout the history of God's people since, Augustine, Athanasius, Elizabeth Elliot, 
C.S. Lewis, Jim Elliot, people who have held fast their confession in the face, in the midst of persecution, poverty, great loss, even in the face of death. Doesn't mean that they were perfect, but their lifelong faithfulness is a great source of encouragement. So those are two exercises that can work like chalk in our lives. But also, what's the sweat that loosens our grip? What's the sweat in your life? Lust, greed, anger, complacency, pride, jealousy. What is a unique challenge to you in your pursuit of holding tightly. Your challenges won't be the same as mine. Where can you call upon the Lord for help? Where do you need to apply some chalk? Friends, some of you are keenly aware that you're drawing nearer to the end of your race. And because of the uncertainty of life, all of us face the reality that our race could end at any moment. Let us hold fast the confession, continually gripping tightly our confession that Jesus is Lord, the Son of God who took our sin upon himself, died the death that we should have, that we deserved, so that we could be forgiven and rose again, showing victory over death. Just hold fast that confession. We then come to the third practice of living in light of Jesus. Verses 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Have you noticed the progression with these three practices? The truth is is that we're not going to be able to hold tightly onto our confession unless we're continually drawing near to God. And we're not going to be able to encourage and stir up one another unless we're first holding fast the confession that we have. Each step is a natural progression, resulting in a flourishing faith that expresses itself through stirring up and encouraging one another. That's the natural end point. There is enough discouragement in the world from broken relationships, from conflict, from pain, from suffering. Jesus' church, Jesus' vision for his church is that, of all places, it should be a place of encouragement in the world. There's two ideas behind the word encourage. There's to comfort, to draw close, to alleviate suffering, to bear one another's burdens. And then the second part is to exhort or to urge, to motivate. It's kind of another way of saying to stir up. 
And there are at least two characteristics that define this godly encouragement, this comforting and exhorting. The first is that it's intentional. See verse 24. Consider or, or think carefully. Encouragement must be intentional and thought through. Naturally, the human condition just leads to discouragement. The times when others have greatly discouraged me or I have discouraged others, it hasn't been intentional. But that's the problem. It hasn't been intentional. I've spoken or acted without intentionality. That's why when someone upsets us, we say, well, that wasn't very thoughtful. Or that was quite thoughtless. Intentionality must be the, at the heart of how we encourage one another. How we encourage one another right here as a community, as an expression of Jesus' local church at Hillside. Godly encouragement is also knowledgeable. Encouragement must be based upon intimate knowledge of one another. That's one of the reasons why it says, not neglecting to meet one another. Not neglecting to meet together. How are we able to encourage one another well without knowing one another? The deepest and the most profound encouragements come from those who know us best, our family, our, our friends, those who see our lives, our experiences. There are many causes for why we would neglect meeting together. Uh, particularly, I'm thinking in mind of Sundays as a church family. For the original readers of Hebrews, it was probably the idea, the, the possibility of persecution. But for us, it's likely more subtle. We're busy and we're tired. The sermons aren't as good as they are online. The music style isn't quite to my taste. I remember hearing a story from a pastor a number of years ago in England and he was a pastor of a young adult's church. And he said that he hadn't seen one of the girls in his uh, congregation for a while, and he was out and about, and he happened to just see her. So he was like, oh, just make sure she's okay, check in with her. And so he went up to her and said, hey, Sarah, how are you doing? Like, I haven't seen you in a while. Uh, are you doing okay? And she said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm doing really well. Um, and he asked, like, hey, is there a reason why I haven't seen you on Sundays? Like, can we help out? She said, well, you know, uh, on Sundays what I've been doing is staying home and, and I'll pull up a sermon online from this, this great church out in the States and, uh, and I'll play some worship music, some Hillsong, get that going. And that's kind of church for me. You know, that, that, that's my church. The interesting thing about Hebrews here is that the motivation for meeting together isn't based on personal benefits, but on how it encourages others. The hope is that there, there will be some personal benefits, <laughs> that you will be stirred up and encouraged. But that seems to be secondary. Primarily, you are encouraging one another. When, when you faithfully come here, 
Sunday and Sunday and week after week and month after month and year after year, you don't realize the encouragement that you are to others around here. You don't realize how we take notice, even, even unconsciously, seeing you, seeing you week after week faithfully here is a great source of encouragement. I know for myself, seeing your faces week after week is a great encouragement to me. I, I can't express it with words. And it gives us a chance to actually be present, to know one another and to be known. Drawing near, holding fast, stirring up. Three practices in light of a life, of, a life lived in light of Jesus. What sets apart the good news of Jesus from every other worldview, religion, belief system is that everything is based upon what he has done first. The passage starts by saying, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, meaning in the very presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, because of what Jesus has done, those who trust in him don't need to do anything else to be able to draw near to God. He's already done it all. We don't need to cleanse ourselves. We don't need to perform a ritual. If we trust in Jesus, we are already able to enter into the presence of God because of his sacrifice, because of his blood. One of my favorite hymns goes, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Blood in Hebrews 10 is not blood in the way that we're used to think about it. Blood represents pain, suffering, contamination, uncleanness. My wife is a nurse and she's keenly aware of this. Blood is something that you want to avoid in the hospital. You don't want to plunge yourself underneath it. It's something that symbolizes suffering and pain. And it does in a sense for Jesus. He did suffer and he did die. But because of why he died, and because he also rose again from the dead, Jesus' blood paradoxically represents victory and forgiveness. In Hebrews 9 it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus fulfilled the law by offering his blood once and for all. That's why we can find such beauty in something that should be a disgusting concept. That's why we can celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, by symbolically eating his body, drinking his blood. Something that sounds really weird. Actually, the early Christians were accused of being cannibals 
because the outsiders knew that they ate the body and, and drank the blood. And it does sound weird. It sounds weird in our culture today as well. Unless you realize, instead of death, Jesus' blood means life for us. Instead of contamination, it means purification for us. Blood usually stains, but Jesus' blood washes us whiter than snow. So because of Jesus, may we devote ourselves to drawing near, holding fast, and stirring up. And all the more as we see the day drawing near, as it says in verse 25. That day when Jesus will return and our race will be finished, but eternal life will just be beginning. Let me pray. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God.